0: were stressed the students were overwhelmed anxious some even in despair there was too much to cover in such a short period of time granted the 16 weeks of the semester we covered everything and the last two weeks come and we had to cram everything in we had to revise i'm not sure what compelled me to want to reteach everything over the previous 16 weeks in two week time and all that stress and pressure, but I really wanted my students to succeed. My students cope with the stress and pressure differently though. Some were overconfident, some were hopeless, some needed external support. Every student was different, and helping each one required slightly different approaches. To put one blanket approach to everyone, uh, it, was, it was very tempting, because I was feeling all this pressure, and if I did that, it probably would have made it worse. So today we are beginning a new series called Practical Christianity. Each week in this series, we will be looking at just a few verses in 1 Thessalonians 5. Anytime we hear the word practical, we are easily tempted to think of a tick list, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. How do I be a better Christian? But I want to encourage you that this is not just a mere to-do list. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians to describe what a church community looks like. Today we will be focusing on just verse 14. This verse comes after a large section of Paul clarifying for the Thessalonians what Jesus's return will be like. It's in this light that we see Paul's urgency in verse 14. As the Thessalonians and ourselves, we don't know when Jesus will return. There's a tendency to just go about our lives thinking, yeah, that's, that's a long, long way away. We have all the time in the world. Just put things off. But in the waiting for that day when Jesus returns, there is a call to action for our church community. In this final section of Paul's letter, Paul is like the teacher who wants to impart all the last minute wisdom uh, because it's like he's invested in the spiritual growth of the Thessalonians. There is an urgency to his message, and it's tempting to see this tick list it's like a last minute cramming revision, but there is a principle that undergirds these final instructions, that like Paul, we are encouraged to be investing in the spiritual growth of the people In the church and when we read paul's words you can see the love and affection that he has for them he knows that a unified church one where all um, encourage each other we live in faith love and hope this is how we prepare for the return of jesus and we are all urged to live like this because jesus can return at any time we can't be caught off guard let's look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Paul writes this in little bite-sized chunks. But let's actually start at the end to understand Paul's heart. Be patient with everyone. When we tell someone to be patient, we may be asking them to just wait for the appropriate time. Just just wait, it'll happen. My wife Naomi and I were recently in Manchester for the night um, and I found a hip place called Hatch. It was a food court with a collection of like independent food trucks and there's like a band playing. Um, So we waited in the queue for two hours. Many times we're tempted to leave because we're like, oh, we're so hungry. Um, but being a Friday night, we're like, oh, but if we leave, I don't know if we're gonna get food any sooner. Like, I'm sure every place is busy. And to prove to the world just how hip we were, we stayed in line. We're not hip. Um, we ended up staying in the queue to have food because it seemed like it was gonna be the best option. And like, honestly, if I were to go to like McDonald's late night, it would have hurt my pride too much. So, and we read about this patience that Paul is talking about. It's not that kind of waiting. It's a different kind of patience. It has more weight. There's a bigger emphasis on others. And the idea that being patient with someone, it doesn't conclude in the outcome that you want. It might, that outcome may never happen. The idea of perseverance, the idea of suffering, this is the patience that Paul is talking about. I think about my grandparents who've now both passed away. My, my grandma was a prayer warrior, hours and hours of praying every day. Uh, and my grandpa was not a Christian until actually his, like, on his deathbed. Um, he was actually pretty stubbornly defiant that he didn't need God. And my grandma prayed and prayed, and then she actually passed away first. My grandpa passed away a few years later, um, but, like, thankfully, uh, as a Christian, But to think my grandma praying all those days, like she didn't know what was gonna happen. She didn't know what the outcome, and she didn't actually get to see on earth the outcome that she desired, but she was still persevering and praying and praying. Or how about the friend that you have who may struggle with anxiety? To you, you may seem like, oh, that anxiety itself inflicted. And then it gets annoying to you. And then sometimes it's like, this doesn't make sense. Why are they anxious all the time? Maybe you do understand why they feel that anxiety. And then you see how the worry starts to debilitate your friend. And yet you are there encouraging, persevering through all of the ups and downs because you know that Jesus does the same with you. The patience here, let's describe it as perseverance, enduring trouble, slow to anger, slow to punish. The patience is relating to the invest in, investment in the spiritual growth of others. It's not just waiting so that we can get what we want. We're patient because we know that we are all in process. So we have to ask ourselves, why would Paul talk about this kind of patience um, in this verse? Because when we are in the business of other people's spiritual growth, it is messy. It's so messy. Paul writes this because he understands that there will be times when you're going to be tempted just to give up on someone, to judge them, to think of them as lesser. The patience that Paul urges us to have is the type when we know that we know the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that nobody is beyond redemption. Nobody has fallen away too much. So now that we've defined patience a little bit better, let's go back to the beginning of verse 14, and we see that Paul uses the word urge. This is like saying, I strongly encourage you because I want you to see the great benefit of this. There's a difference between telling someone to do something and urging someone to do something. When I urge my students, I I didn't want them to just study certain concepts because I told them to do I wanted them to do it because they understood the importance of it. They took responsibility for their own studies. And as we look at what Paul is saying in this verse, we don't want to do these things just because the Bible says we'll do those things. We want to do these because we have a vested interest in other people's growth. We have a vested interest in seeing ourselves grow. Investing in our church community is a natural response to the love and patience that Jesus has already shown towards us. Paul shows what patience looks like with three types of troubled people in our community. And I'm not sure that this is an exhaustive list, but I want you to notice that there's different approaches to each type of troubled person. And let me reiterate that this is not just a tick list. It's not a manual, like, oh yeah, you're this way? Okay, this is your method. If you're this way, this is the method. Um, we are meant to see that we all have been troubled at one point or another, and there's no greater example of how Jesus approaches us, how Jesus is patient with us. And because of his grace for us, we can approach our fellow brothers and sisters in a similar manner. So the first type of individuals, the rebellious need warning. Paul mentions those who are idle and disruptive. Other translations describe this type of person as like unruly or undisciplined. As a teacher, um, during this like final exam period, like there were these students that I had, no matter what I said, they were convinced that they were gonna be okay. I would warn them they need to revise specific sections and they, that like certain concepts are trickier than they imagined. Um, but they were like, no, I can coast, I got this. They believe that they can do the bare minimum and just pass. And it was very natural for me to give them the warning, please don't take this revision for granted. There are a lot of important things. You need to prepare, prepare well. And then other people were rebellious in a different way. They would say like, yeah, I know I should, but I really wanna hang out with my friends. Uh, It's just too much, I don't wanna do it. I mean, I guess you can all guess what happened at the end of the story, like what happened to these students. Um, they didn't do very well on the exam, and so me as the teacher could have easily said, "Well, I told you so. You should have listened to me. Why? Why didn't you just? Why didn't you just listen?" But this is why we have to put the warnings in the context of the patience that Paul is talking about. It's very important because the patience kind of undergirds everything. So, what does this type of person look like in our church community? When we think of the unruly it may be easy to pick out the noticeable examples. The person who talks too much. The person who lives life according to their own rules. The one who um, shows up to church like a little bit late because they feel like they can. Maybe the one who gives their opinion a little bit too freely. And these people may fall under the category of rebellious. And they they are disruptive. But I also want to draw your attention to a different kind of subtle rebellion. Because ultimately, the greatest rebellion is our rebellion to God. An inner church person, this person may look like the one who knows what God is telling them to do. Maybe they grew up in a Christian family, been to youth camps, president of Christian Union, serves every month on Sunday, respected in the church community. But whatever the reason, they hear God saying, Love your neighbor. And then a million excuses come I'm too busy. That would be an awkward conversation wouldn't it what would they think of me i could lose my job this is a willful rebellion it's a choice that we make to disobey god this is the idol and i'm not here to try to make everybody feel guilty my intention is to say that we all have a rebellious streak and we all need warning we need someone to come along Side of us and say lovingly there's a better way god is the better way god wants you to live this way because it's the best way to live and when we hear these words we have a choice and i like to say that anybody who gives me a warning like instantly i'm like yes you're so right i'm going to change my ways but i'm stubborn i'm prideful it takes someone to have complete patience with us anticipating that we're going to fail over and over and over in the same way. And this really shows us the character and heart of God, that no matter how many times we fail, the same way, the rebellious mistake, over and over and over, he is always alongside of us. So what about when we observe this rebellious streak in others in our church family? We have to remember how Jesus approaches us. We have to remember how Jesus has patience with us and that Jesus' patience with us is limitless. And the warnings to others, it can't be judgment words. They need to be spoken in love, in the context of a relationship. They need to be spoken in the context of community. We are patient because we are communicating that we are with them together. It's not a, well, that's your problem. And I'm just going to be here in the back seat and just tell you, Like, what's wrong? We're not backseat drivers. We are there to warn. And in the chance that they don't listen to that first warning, which it's going to happen all the time because we're all sinful, like, we're still there for them. We don't write them off. We don't dismiss them. We continue in the relationship the way Jesus does with us. No matter how many times we sin the same way, struggle the same way, Jesus is constantly, consistently loving us. This is important because I guarantee that there will be people in the church whose rebellious streak will just constantly frustrate you, it'll grate on you over time, and then it leads us to judge them. Let me tell you a story about Kevin. This is a hypothetical. But Kevin is on the rota for the welcome team. He's relatively new to church and he's excited to start serving. So three months in, without notifying anyone, he doesn't show up one Sunday. So being the kind, compassionate leader that you are, you naturally show grace. Maybe he overslept. Maybe he was tired. So you go over to him, and he asks, is everything all right? And he tells you, yeah, he had to work late last night. He just forgot to set up his alarm. And so because it was only the first time, you might just brush it off. You might not even warn him. But then it happens a second time. It happens a third time. Oh, no, it's not, a pat- it's not a one-time thing. It's a pattern. I'm going to have to say something. The impatient warning would be to say, Listen, Kevin, this is something that you committed to, and you haven't communicated with anyone. Um, it's been three months. You said you were going to come, you just, and you didn't. Or maybe you could say something a little bit more compassionate. It's the summertime. People are on holiday, and we're short people, and we would really love for you to help us out. We know that you haven't been able to come, but we're really counting on you. While this may be true, it isn't said with patience, not the patience that Paul is talking about, We may say it kindly, we may say it compassionately, but there's an extra element that's needed to show patience. You have to display that you are invested in the relationship long term. If you repeatedly say the warning and there is no change, we are tempted to write Kevin off. He's not useful to me anymore. But as we exhibit patience, we are more invested in the relationship. We are more invested in Kevin's spiritual growth not just because we want something from him, it's because we want something for him. So then we ask questions and we try to understand, why are these patterns forming? And so you go and have coffee with Kevin during the week. And then you ask him probing questions and he tells you, you know, he's been reliable growing up in the church. Um, in uni, he was the president of the Christian Union. As a working adult, he would be praised for his Innovative ideas and creative solutions. And then lately, he's been getting some feedback at work, because he gets distracted with the next big ideas um, that he misses his deadlines, and like that is affecting his coworkers. Now the coworkers can't miss uh, their deadlines, but because of Kevin's actions, they're missing their deadlines. So now his procrastination is affecting his productivity. So this leads to self-doubt, guilt, shame. then it's like all right I have to work late hours I have to work on Saturday and I have to work late on Saturday because he fears if he doesn't get his deadlines done he's going to lose his job so then he works harder later he works himself into exhaustion he's oversleeping doesn't make it to church and then you realize like ah maybe this isn't willful rebellion I mean, if it was, you could say a warning like, Kevin, you just need to be more proactive in your time management. You need to set a schedule, Google Calendar. It's great. Be more on top of it. Um, stick to it. Have accountability. And this has to be done in the context of relationship. And Kevin knows that you're for him. But the more you hear about the story, like, it's not that Kevin is being idle or disruptive. There's something more going on. There is a genuine fear that Kevin may lose his job. And so... He realizes, I can't do my job well and serve at church. I can't do it all. But so Kevin doesn't need a warning for being rebellious. He needs encouragement because he is faint-hearted. He is fearful. And so this is the second person we see. Number two, the fearful need encouragement. You can change this way. We see the word disheartened. And this also means faint-hearted or small-souled. A lot of times we misinterpret someone's actions as willful rebellion when in fact there's an underlying fear that is influencing all of their decisions. It doesn't discount the rebellion going on. It's just that a different approach is necessary. Every year, I always had students who convinced themselves that they were going to fail the final exam. They weren't my best students, or my worst students, um, but they felt like with the amount of work and effort that they put throughout the year, like their remarks just weren't showing, you know, they, were not, they were not very good, they are not meeting their expectations. So on the one hand, I have these students over here who are like, yeah, I can coast, I'm going to get by, it'll be easy, bare minimum. On the other hand, I have these students who are like, oh man, no matter what I do, it's it's just it's, it's going to end in failure. But in the classroom, I'm seeing this and they both look disengaged. They're not listening, they're not paying attention. And So I'm like looking at this, and it's like, why are they all disengaged? So I just decide I need to give them all warning. You all need to shape up, revise. No excuses now. Can you imagine the disheartened, the fearful, the one who thinks that they're going to fail, hearing that and be like, oh man, now I feel even more disheartened. My failure is inevitable, and that just sealed it. And what if I told my coasting students, you know, everything will be fine. Just just, just be you. Just do what you're going to do. This will undoubtedly feel empowering to them because they're like, yeah, I can just act as I want to. And they don't recognize that their behavior is going to lead into folly. So I wish I could tell you that immediately I could tell the difference between the coasting students, their willful rebellion, and the other type who are like, They're so disheartened, they're gonna fail. But to me, it like looks the same. They're both disengaging in class. Um, And honestly, it's, it's worse than that. As a teacher at that point, stress high, I didn't care. I didn't care who was willfully rebelling. I didn't care who was being fearful. I had deadlines. I had to like say something. I had to get through with the revision. And so I just say the blanket statement and say, Pay attention, pay attention. It takes patience. We have to be invested in other people's growth. Um, and the thing is like, the reason I reacted that way is because I had my own fear. You know, somebody need to take me aside and say, you know, why, why, why are you why acting that way? Why are you so terse? Why are you so short with people, with your students? And then it comes out like, you know, I don't want to be seen as a bad teacher. What if all my students fail the exam? What, if, what, what would other people think of me? And the encouragement that I need to hear in that moment is, you know, God is with you. God is in control. Your worth, your identity, they're not in the achievements, and they're definitely not in the achievements of your students. And when we allow someone to ask us the deeper questions, we may find that there is some underlying fear that causes us to act in certain ways. But we come back to this patient, patience that Paul is talking about. People who fear can't just flip on a switch, turn it on and off. Oh, I don't fear anymore. It's magically gone. Can't do that. It takes time and it takes encouragement and it takes coming back to the same God truths over and over and over And this is what Jesus does for us, with us. My fear of not achieving wasn't something that just magically sprung up overnight. It's been there since I was a child. And God has told me over and over, my identity is not in my achievement, many times. I wouldn't be surprised if God just gave up on me because of how many times that he has said that to me. But he doesn't do that. He continues to love me. And he always will. So Paul makes this profound distinction of how to approach those in our church family who are troubled by their own will and those who are troubled by fear. So let's go back to Kevin's story. And we see that showing not showing up to welcome team was based on a chain reaction of events that started in a fear that he was going to lose his job. And we have a choice to make here. We can either disregard what is going on in Kevin's heart And feel justified in our warning i told him he should know better set an alarm or we can acknowledge that there's something deeper going on and that paul urges us to use an encouragement approach this type of encouragement with patience communicates god's truth but with the idea that we will not abandon kevin if he continues to fear if he continues to be frustrating and if we think there is no hope We point him to Christ who knows our burdens and we remind Kevin that Jesus accepts our failure. He even expects our failure and that we can trust him. And we are empathetic because we also have our own fears. Our own fears influence our decision-making. His fears influence his decision-making. So we don't warn Kevin to shape up. We communicate to Kevin the truths about God No matter how many times, you may need to repeat yourself. And we make it personal, something that fits with Kevin's story. Trust God with the fear that you have that you might lose your job. He is in control. God can and does give you everything you need. It may just not look like what you imagined. God's character is one of love, grace, compassion. God doesn't abandon us. You are not alone. This is not just advice that we give. We also understand that we have our own fears and we are disheartened about things too. We're not better than Kevin. We all need Jesus. We are in this together. And when we realize that we're in the same boat, patience becomes easier. Remember, we're not patience because we're getting something out of it in the end. We're patient because we are no better than our brother or sister. When we realize that we need our Savior together, we naturally show empathy. And with empathy, we encourage with patience. And when we are more interested in Kevin's story, it's not just about fixing his issue. We are able to determine if warning or encouragement is the right approach. And so that brings us to our third trouble type, the weak need help. So whilst I was teaching... I had a student who was partially blind. He had to take exams like everyone else, obviously, and glasses were an integral help that he needed. I mean, that seems pretty obvious. So when he wore his glasses, he was fine. He could see the board. He's actually one of my best students. Um, But one day, his glasses broke. And so he's seated in the back of the room, and I noticed that he wasn't paying attention. So I'm like, hmm, something's going on. So I'm like, okay, I gotta get my best warning. Um, but before I do my warning, I'm just gonna ask, hey, what's going on? Is everything okay? Something wrong? My glasses broke and I can't see the board. So naturally, I just said, like, when were you gonna tell me that you couldn't see the board? You know, kinda help yourself here. And I was like, quickly trying to arm my justified warning towards him. And then he says to me, like, I actually just didn't wanna be a bother to anyone in class. I didn't wanna make a a scene. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) So, you know, I was arming up for this warning. No warning was gonna help him in that moment, you know? And I couldn't like encourage him. Like, you know, if you just squint a little bit harder, you'll be able to see. No, I have the solution. I just needed to bring him to the front of the room so he could see the board. And that's what I did, right? In that moment, there was no warning or encouragement that was needed. It was just help. And so I asked a student in the front to trade seats with him in the back, and great. And so the Bible has many instances of weak people. And the way we describe weak people here is somebody who needs support. In the context of community, it will become clear who are the people where warning and encouragement are not the best approaches rather it's the help that they need and so we see throughout the bible that there are people like this widows orphans the poor the oppressed abused physically mentally ill but if you think about it like everyone is born utterly helpless like we're fully dependent on our caretakers. And in multiple points in our lives, we're weak to varying degrees. Which makes helping the weak very intuitive out of the three types. As a church, when we see someone in need, we are quick to help because there are times that we've been weak ourselves and we have relied on the love, the compassion, and the mercy of others. And the help is meaningful because someone took the time to get to know what I needed and then helped me. That shows love and care. And sometimes weakness is seen through temporary circumstance. One of the best examples we see in our church community is when there's a newborn. People are like on the ready, like, okay, water broke, mom and dad need to go to the hospital, someone's coming over to watch the kids, Um, there's already like a rota for food that is like set before it all happens. Like the family is just cared for whatever is needed. And Paul urges us to help the weak with patience, to have expectations that the weak may not get better in the long term, but still require our help. We don't want to see helping the weak as mere obligation, and we don't see them as problems to be fixed. The temptation is to help the weak without patience. We may be tempted to only help when it's convenient for me, but remember how we define this patience, the idea that being patient with somebody may not ever conclude in the outcome that you want. Not even in the timing that you want. When we build relationships with others and get to know them, the help is natural. We're less prone to like calculate the cost of helping. Helping the weak is not only for the weak, it's also for the helper to realize that we are weak and how amazing the patience, the grace that Jesus has for you and me. So we all need patience. That's the key that holds everything together, patience. A patience that is enduring potentially long-suffering. We all have A little bit of willful rebellion faint-heartedness and weakness and when we help these troubled types we shouldn't be surprised that there could be elements of all three going in at once we really need to desire this patience because no matter how many times you end up warning encouraging or helping in the same way no matter how tedious it gets we ask god that he would change our hearts and that we would understand that this is what Jesus does for us all the time, over and over. As a church, it is all of our responsibility. Working with the troubled is not only for the designated leaders of the church. We do it in community. When we warn, encourage, and help, we actually get a glimpse into what God is doing for us. And we level the playing field and our community becomes a place where we all point each other to God. No one's better than the other person. This is how we build each other up. And if you're here today and not a Christian, this is the type of community that is on offer. This is what our God is like, the one who levels the playing field, the one who warns the idle, encourages the faint-hearted, helps the weak. Built in this community is the assumption that nobody is perfect and we all need God. And there is urgency for this because there's no better time than now to start following Jesus. While we are waiting for the Lord to return, Paul urges us to build a community where we wait with each other. And we wait for each other by warning, encouraging, and helping patiently. let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the community that you have surrounded us with. And we know it's so evident then when we are helping, when we're encouraging, when we are warning, that you have done that for us. you have brought people, Uh, in our lives, who have done that that for us over the years, but maybe the order was wrong or the approach was wrong. Lord, give us wisdom. We really are all at the same level. We all need you, and we pray for a community that exemplifies this, that we are all invested in each other's spiritual growth, um, that you would help us be bold when we do need to warn when we do need to suspend judgment and encourage, and when we need to help. Lord, give us the courage to do what we need to do because we love that you do this for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs)